You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Hunt of War podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 115, Old World Meat Crafting with Umhydri. On this episode of Huntivore, we sink our teeth into next-level meat crafting. Nick digitally sits down with Thea Lopetka, owner of Umai Dry. Together they discuss old-world meat crafting from the home kitchen, creating salamis, dry sausage, and even dry-aged large cuts of meat in a safe, easy-to-produce method of sealing ground meat or whole muscle into a synthetic bag or casing that allows air and moisture to pass through. After talking about the beneficial bacteria, lowering pH, cure, and salt as they work in layers for safety, the discussion opens up to seasonings, rates of drying, and being able to enjoy and share a very unique treat that will certainly turn some heads and get mouths watering. Dig out your old chemistry notes and make space in your fridge for this episode of Huntivore. Before we get into our episode, I want to share that I reached out to Umai Dry about featuring their bags and kits. What started as a request to use their product blossomed into a partnership. Learning about their family-run company located in Minnesota, how their product and my audience fill a very specific yet similar niche, and how the use of their bags and casings could elevate the wild game eating experience. Umai Dry is now a show sponsor, and I want to publicly thank Thea and the folks from Umai Dry. Here soon I will have a link to their website and a discount code available to you. Umai Dry has given me a chance to showcase them, and I hope it is, and I hope it is well worth the risk in you taking a chance on using their products to celebrate our harvest. I hope you check them out. Now, on with the show. Well, hey folks. Beautiful evening here in Michigan. Hey, we we had some snow, but now it's gone again. We're getting this toying system of melt and then re-snow, melt and re-snow here. Sounds like that's going to continue for a little bit. We're going to have a white-ish Christmas, but that's neither here nor there. Folks, we're going to have an awesome discussion, kind of something that people are looking forward to in the holidays and stuff a project that uh, we can use to really expand our venison usage. 
not to say that summer sausage isn't a great project and that making fresh brats isn't one of the most satisfying things to get in the summertime when it's on the grill, but we're going to start talking about aging. We're going to start talking about uh, charcuterie. And when I say aging and charcuterie, like we're really going to focus in on the idea that we're going to go for a long age on this and to help us out with some of those dynamic uh, situations we're going to find ourselves in. We're going to be talking chemistry. We're going to talk pH. We're going to talk a lot about this nitty gritty stuff. I am sitting down with Thea Lopteca. Lopteca? Am I getting my close? Lopatka. <laughs> uh, she is the CEO of Umai Dry, a company that is specific into having homeowners use dry aging techniques and charcuterie techniques on uh, on their venison, on their pork, on their beef. Thea, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. So one thing that I, that I have found is that hunters are wanting to do more with their venison. They're wanting to get more out of their venison. The day and age of of just getting ground, getting your back straps cut into medallions and give, you know, a little bag of tenderloins. That is, that is one way I think guys are still having their deers done, but at the same time, people are venturing into wanting uh, more out of their venison. And one of those ways is they're doing their own butchery. They're getting different cuts. They're getting different pieces that they're going to get a chance to play with more so than they've ever had before. And on top of that, guys are very intrigued about, even in the, you know, the domestic culinary world, dry age has become very popular, has been very buzzworthy, especially in the past, like, five, ten years. People look at a piece of dry-aged beef much higher than they look at a piece of wet-aged beef, even though the two processes are working pretty much the same way. There is a flavor profile that you're getting from the dry age piece of that. And Mm -hmm. what we're finding is that uh, being able to do that takes a lot of effort. There's a lot of things to really think about and to control. You know, it's not just throwing a piece of meat in the refrigerator. There's a lot that we're trying to handle here. What are some of these obstacles that we're trying to overcome when it comes to dry aging meat? Well, when we started experimenting with this this material that had no application originally, the first challenge really was reminding people about dry age. You know, until the early 1960s, everybody knew what a taste, you know, a dry aged steak tasted like because meat was dry aged before plastic was used. Um, it was shipped. And, and it dry aged or it was slaughtered near where people were going to eat it and uh, and it was hung, right? Um, and so the old timers I've talked to back then, the so-called challenge uh, was, well, the younger butchers then, the guys who are old now would say they remember in those days, they'd go back in the coolers and measure the fur on the beef that was hanging, Right. And that was kind of an indication of when it was ready to complete the processing, right? 
Um, so, so in the old days, you'd, you know, hang a side of beef and you'd dry age the whole thing, not just the steaks. And mind you, I mean, your audience knows all the different textures of meat on a given animal have to be handled in different ways, right? Processed different ways, cooked different ways. So yeah, I'm kind of going too deep into this, but um, one of the original challenges was you had to hang them until they grew a bunch of stuff. And then you had to process the whole thing, not just the steak into its use. And not every part was improved by dry aging. Nowadays, now that people in the past 15 years have started to, um, you know, awaken an interest in how dry aging improves the meat, rather than the flavor we had become used to since about 1965, which is wet aged, it's more metallic, it doesn't have an earthy or nutty flavor to it. And, and we've adapted to it. But if someone who had steak before 1965 tastes a product that comes out of Umai dry, they're like, oh my gosh, I forgot that beef used to taste like this, right? So um, the big impediment for people who are embracing dry aging now is concerned about contamination. We don't have a tolerance for measuring the fur on the beef anymore <laughs> the way we might have, you know, um, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And I don't think we have the microbiome in our gut to handle it either, right? We live in a very clean world today. So cross-contamination, uh, mold growth, um, these, these things are rightfully big concerns for people. Uh, I think one of the other more you know immediate current events oriented concern is um, cost. When you dry age, the meat will lose moisture. Um, in losing the moisture, you intensify the beef flavor. You don't actually shrink the steak, the yield, because when you cook a wet aged steak, you lose that same amount of moisture. But um, you know when you're selling the beef, you started out with twenty pounds, and now all of a sudden you're only selling 12 pounds of dry aged beef, right? And people don't buy beef based on what's left on their plate after you know they cook it, right? So um, the waste, this, the appearance of waste with dry age, I think is the more current concern for people. Um, one of the things that most people don't know is that Umai Dry actually has proven in various scientific studies to have much less trim loss. I mean, no matter what, when you truly dry age, you're going to get a bark on the outside of the beef. Some people call it a pellicle. It's technically not a pellicle, but you know, that dry layer, if you open air dry age, you're going to have a much thicker bark and it's going to be really, really hard. Whereas with Umai dry, you're going to get a hard a bark, something you can knock on, but it has almost a waxiness and the depth is significantly less. So you take that 12-pound dry-aged piece of meat, you trim off the bark, and if you've open-air dry-aged, you're probably going to end up with a lot closer to 9, 10 pounds if you're really good with a knife, whereas with Umai Dry, you'll probably get 10, 11 pounds because there's less. Yeah, that's a great point. And I even find that with guys, even if, when I hang my deer, I have found, like the couple times that I did dry hang it, or hang it, and I pulled the hide off. I essentially got what you're talking about—that bark across the whole animal. And my, yeah, I did feel like I lost a lot of trim 
in that. Uh, so I started hanging my animals with the hide on. Now I'm I'm in northern climate. You're you're in Minnesota. I'm in uh, Michigan. We can get away with that. Um, and very similar to what you were, what you were saying is that my trim loss was lessened because I had a sheath, a skin, a hide on that animal. Was I still was there still moisture loss because the cavity was open and I did have part partial uh, cuts that were exposed? Absolutely, and those areas did get that bark, but all in all, the animal was really left barkless because I left that hide on and hmm. with Umai dry we can now shift over Let, you've mentioned it a couple times we're talking this specific synthetic material that you've been working with um you mentioned it like earlier it it didn't have a, a purpose yet until you guys got played with it and really tried some experiments with it what what is this Umai dry material we understand that it's like a plastic base it's synthetic hmm. but what makes it what makes it so feasible to be able to dry meat inside of a bag created with this material? Okay, so first, I think it's important for people to understand that this material was not intentionally developed for this purpose. I mean, it's such a little niche application. No scientist or manufacturer is going to go out there and develop something for this purpose. So the real story is that this is something like the story of post-it glue. Some people know that story where it was a it was a a lab accident that they found a use for. They really found a use for, right? <laughs> so this product was similarly, I don't know if it was a lab accident so much as um <clears throat> there was a a polymer polymer um, inventor, basically, who was playing with combining different types of plastic and nylon polymers. And he happened to come up with this, Weird material that, unlike most plastic, lets moisture go through it and lets oxygen go through it. You know, usually you want plastic at a minimum to hold all the moisture inside. And usually, like if you're vacuum sealing a product in a food saver type of bag, you want it to block the oxygen, right? Exactly. So this accidentally discovered material came about and it's like, oh, what are we going to do with it? So starting about 15 to 18 years ago, um, this guy was just talking to different people at different conventions um, saying, hey, can you think of a use for this? So he, he, he played with some medical uses, played with some uh, applications at different kinds of food industries with fish, with cheese, with meat. And um, <clears throat> I happened to have a former colleague who met this guy and got the idea of along with a bunch of other ideas. This the the former colleague of mine loved like collecting new ideas. And um and so he sort of presented this possibility to me of uh you know sampling this for use in the meat industry uh to bring back this idea of dry aged beef because the cost of dry aging facilities especially at a commercial level is a tremendous capital investment. So if we could prove that meat actually safely dried inside of this bizarre, you know, mix of polymer membrane, um, maybe there'd be an application for it. Does that answer your question? I started rambling. 
No, it answers it right on the head that the fact that, okay. yeah, you had this material kind of basically dropped off at your doorstep as far as, or at least presented like, hey, we need to figure out what to do with this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just the a happy medium of, you know, time and place and how everything worked out. Like you were inspired that maybe this can be applied into dry aging beef. It is starting to become a thing. I I, I say beef, but it could be any meat um, or food item that you're working with this. Mm-hmm. And it, at that point too, like you think about the oxygen aspect of it, when you're hanging charcuterie, you're hanging uh, these dry age steaks, you want that element of oxygen. But at the same time, since the 60s, we've been conditioned that oxidation is bad. Oxidation within your freezer creates freezer burn. And that's a bad thing. We don't, we want to get all the oxygen out. We want to seal that up. And if we can keep it um, cold, we can keep it basically anaerobic, no, no air to it. It's going to last longer. We're going to be able to eat it then. But now we're starting to unravel that, hey, we can bring this very unique idea of dry aging items or or even the old idea of tre- creating charcuterie in our own homes. This mm-hmm. is that gateway between some of this really delicious, amazing food that we've kind of been, as homeowners, we've kind of been separated from. We have to go commercial or we have to go old world. Thanks to the internet, we can at least order something from old Italy. But now it's, hey, I can bring this into my home. I can now experiment this on my own. And I think that... And and safely. And safely. And safely. safely. You can give confidence to who's creating it because, A, at this point, they're going to put a lot of work into sourcing the meat for this. They get a hold of your product. They're going to have their hands as far as controlling it, uh, keeping a log if they wanted to, if they were that crazy and wanted to keep track of numbers. But at the same time, they get to move it. They get to roll it. They get to play with it and check on it and babysit this thing as it's in the refrigerator. When it comes time for them to bring it out, I mean, shoot, it's going to be like Christmas morning after 45 days of watching that that big rib roast go ahead and just roll around that refrigerator. Or if they went to the lengths of using uh, pork to make this amazing salami, like now they finally get to cut into that thing and Mm -hmm. see what has happened through all of this. So Mm -hmm. that's very cool that this happened, like you said, like the the post-it where – it was merely just a happen chance of, hey, we need a purpose for this. Otherwise, I got to scrap this whole project. And it turns out to be something very useful for meat crafters. So that is amazing, amazing stuff, Thea. Yeah. It's been an evolution. It's been a huge discovery. Yeah. And I think a big part of it for me is, um, you know, my background is as an educator and, uh, you know, culture, anthropology, that kind of stuff. And I just love that we ended up you know, finding a business idea that actually enables people to retrieve old traditions. You know, one of our slogans is creating tradition at home. But in some of our markets, especially up in Canada, people are just trying to do what their grandfather or their great grandfather was doing before they emigrated to Canada, right? You know, they haven't forgotten. Here in the US, the vast majority of the population has forgotten you know, how you preserve food in ways so the food is basically still alive, right? Cured meats, cheeses, 
you know, pickles, all of that. We ate a lot of food that was alive in the past. So I think Umaidrai ends up being in a very, you know, highly modernized way, right? A way to safely recapture uh, those food traditions. What a unique way to look at a product and to like, I don't know. I find food very important in my life. And just to bring a product that you said, like, yeah, I'm selling this product, but it is really awakening people's heritage because now they have the opportunity to create what their ancestors did. Give it two, three generations ago. The old world is starting to become alive again in the new world. I tell you, even even just with my circles of hunters, we've really enjoyed well, hey, where do, where did you get this cut this time? Like, hey, I found a new way that I've broken down the shoulder. Or, you know what? I did a new brat seasoning this this time around. So this this idea of inventing, this idea of trying to find new things to make with our with our wild game, as much as we're looking for that new item, new item, there's a lot of guys that are turning and going back in time. We're going back to the way things are being done in our form in our former heritage way back when so this is super cool stuff that we've yeah, been able to plastic, get a chance to freezers <laughs> yeah right? i mean we're not talking more than a couple generations back but yeah you had to hang that salami in your cellar during those couple of months that it was exactly the right you know temperature and humidity level for it to ferment and dry safely right and we've we've forgotten so well we appreciate that you've been able to bring up and basically like handhold us along or like, you know, walk us along trying to bring back some of this old stuff because with this product, it's brought, come back to the homeowner. We can get a chance to use this within our own refrigerators, within our own elements of refrigeration um, that we have available. And um, we can get into a whole number of of products that you guys are making as far as like the bag sizes. So they do make a large bag uh, for putting in whole cuts for large cuts of beef, of pork, of lamb, you name it, that protein can go into those bags and then all the way down to casings. And that's what got me really excited uh, earlier this year. And so Thea, I did, I reached out to you and I was very excited about looking at, at charcuterie. Um, in our family, like the, my, I say charcuterie and my wife says charcuterie. My brother has chosen this hill. To, he wants to say smorgasbord. I don't know <laughs> if it, it is exactly ties in, but he stuck with it. He's like, no, no, this is a smorgasbord. That's what we're going with. But to to have cheeses that are that are more than just cheddar and Swiss, that you know, normal day stuff. To have things that are more than um, just sandwich meat, but to really like look at some of these uh, flavor profiles and to use a fermentation that you can't get unless you are purposeful, at least here in the New World, uh, at least in the U.S., you have to be perf purposeful about in or, uh, inoculating bacteria and adjusting the pH. And for folks who have started out or who want to start out on something like this, like these are going to be a couple of their biggest hurdles that, oh my goodness, I need, I'm putting bacteria into 
my meat, I'm actually going to mix that in. I thought all bacteria was bad. But through you, but through, again, through making a very safe product, you as Umai Dry uh, use a specific bacteria. You want to go in a little bit on what that bacteria is and how it, is, how it basically blooms throughout the meat and adjusts the pH? Yeah. So let me just say that foundation of Umai Dry as a company is to provide the information so that customers have a very straightforward and safe way to, to perform meatcraft, to learn to do meatcraft in the modern times, right? So we don't have caves, we have refrigerators. We don't live with a lot of the bacteria live in our environment like we might have in the past. So it's better to start with controlled specific bacterium that for a certain purpose. So if you want to make sourdough bread, you're probably going to start with a sour sourdough starter rather than putting some yeast and water, you know, on the counter and waiting for it to capture wild yeast, right? Um, I have some customers that say, hey, why do I need to buy the starter culture from you um, to make sausage? Um, they didn't, you know, my my great grandfather in Italy didn't need it. And I'm like, well, first of all, your great grandfather in Italy had a very different gut than you have. <laughs> and 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 they could inoculate the meat just by, you know, the whole family needing the meat. That's what would happen is you'd mince up that meat and you'd put it out on the table and you'd knead all the salt and the seasonings into it. And the bacteria on your hands would inoculate it, right? Again, we're just, that's not going to happen in the modern era in, you know, certainly in North America, right? So if you put those two things together, you need to inoculate. You want to make yogurt, you buy certain, you know, lactobacillus that help that process. You want to make fermented sausage. There are a wide variety of cultures for doing that. Umaidrai has made the decision, again, to make it as straightforward and safe for the customer as possible. So we've chosen the Christian Hansen Bactofirm TSPX because it is a meat culture that ferments at room temperature reliably. It will ferment within 72 hours at room temperature. Um, and, and it will reach, it will bring the meat into a pH of the five range, right? It will not go much lower. So you don't end up with like a super tart salami. It, it has the activity so that it, it starts kind of killing itself off when it reaches the five range. So five, is plenty safe. 72 hours, you don't want to have the meat out at room temperature for longer than that because then you enter another range for other pathogens to grow, right? So TSPX is a culture that just makes it easy for people at home to blend it in with a little water. Preferably, you want to make sure the water has been boiled and cooled or it's distilled water because the chlorine can kind of inhibit the bacteria growth. You want to make sure that you're generous with adding dextrose to your mixture because the dextrose feeds the little bugs in the TSPX, right? Um, and then you put it in a protected space somewhere in your house. Some people hang it in their shower. Some people hang it in a closet downstairs. Some people, we often tell people, hang it in the oven, make sure to put a sign on the oven to tell the other members of the household not to turn that oven on and, <laughs> you know, preheat it to 450 for their frozen pizza, right? Um, but 
an oven is a perfect place. It's the perfect temperature. It's a nice contained environment. The outside of the sausage will not start to dry too quickly while the fermentation is happening. Um, that has some other negative effects. Um, and so, yeah, that's why we made the choice. Can you use other cultures? Absolutely. Um, one other thing that I should note is if you buy a dry sausage kit from Umai Dry, you're going to get a packet of TSPX. Christian Hansen only manufactures TSPX for commercial users. So that packet is enough for technically 300 pounds of meat. <laughs> now, nobody's going to be doing 300 pounds of meat at one time. They're not even going to do 30 pounds of meat, which is what most of our kits are formulated for otherwise, you know, the curing salts and such. Um, but the beauty of it is you can just seal up your uh, TSPX again, and we give you this bright orange, shiny packet. So when you throw it back in the freezer to preserve it for up to 18 months from the date of manufacture, you know, it's this nice eye-catching packet. We used to ship them out in white um, puffy packets. And then people were constantly emailing going, I didn't get my packet. I didn't get my culture. And I'm like, mm, you probably did check the freezer, you know, yeah. and they'd have to dig through the freezer. So now we've got this nice bright packet that you um, reseal your packet of culture, throw it in there, throw it in the freezer. And then the next time you use it and the next time you use it, you know, up to that 18 months, just be a little bit more generous with how much you use because Unlike curing salt and salt, which have to be in an, a pretty exact proportion for safety, the culture will not, you can't really add too much culture. As I said, it's not going to drop the pH into the super tart range. TSPX isn't designed that way. But what we like to say is, as the culture ages, be you know gradually more generous with it. And you probably make more sausage than you can probably eat and share with everybody in the course of 18 months um, to make that investment worthwhile. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I kind of think of it as almost like if somebody were, was a baker and there's, there's several different types of, um, of yeast and yeast kind of acts in that same way that it's got a, you know, it's got a shelf life. It's going to go bad at some point, or excuse me, not going to go bad. It's going to die at some point. And then there are versions of yeast that have basically like a, a capsule of dead yeast around it that the more that it dies off, you have to basically add a little bit more versus, you know, whatever version of yeast you're using. And that kind of looking with this bacteria is the same way is that if I'm going to use it, like a, I, there's a specific amount you've given, but if I add a few grams more, the whole the whole pot isn't shot at this point. It's mm -hmm. it's all going to get to that the the right pH that we're going to. It's going to die off. Same thing if I have a a heaping uh, instead of like a teaspoon of the yeast, and I've got a heaping teaspoon. A lot's not going to change in the bread that I'm making. It may get a little bit more bubbly, but at the same time the dough is going to be fine. Is that a, is that an okay uh, analogy there? It's a great analogy, Nick. I, I would only add that the, the tricky thing is when you use yeast, you can proof your yeast. You can test it, right? With a little warm water and sugar and make sure it's alive. Can't do that with TSPS. <laughs> not right? so much with that. Yeah. And, and with flour, as opposed to with meat, 
you put yeast in flour and it's going to expand, you know, it's going to stretch that gluten. If you've put too much in, it's just going to expand that much more quickly, right? And you're going to punch it down and you're going to put it in loaves and get it in the oven. It's going to, any excess is going to be deactivated basically, right? Yeah. You don't have that benefit with meat. It doesn't puff up. <laughs> it doesn't give you a visual signal that it's, you know. Um, so the 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 hint that we give people is that as it ferments, it will blush. And that's a very subtle thing. And not all people can identify the color red changing very easily, right? But, and, you know, if you're making a pepperoni, you have so much red spice color in there that identifying whether it's getting brighter or more orange or more, you know, it's a little bit tricky. So um, your best guarantee that you have a safe product is to keep that TSPX in the freezer, take it out when you're going to use it, feed it enough dextrose, right? And use enough of it. Be generous. Don't dump the whole packet in. That would just be a waste, right? But don't be afraid to be more generous because it's your... It's your insurance policy that you get good fermentation. Because inevitably, this this bacteria makes this whole thing happen. If if we were doing this without the bacteria, we're essentially giving getting ourselves sick because we've not changed the pH, we've not um, made an environment that is going to be unsuitable for other pathogens. It's basically going to be this free-for-all going into that sausage, going into that uh, salami that we're making, and that's where we're going to really run into trouble. In effect, this bacteria is making this whole thing possible. If we, by adjusting that pH, we're creating an unsuitable environment for other pathogens to take over, giving the meat time to dry and develop these other flavors. Exactly. I mean, the truth is you have three barriers to pathogens in a fermented dry sausage, right? Your first barrier is your salt. Actually, I take that back. You've got four barriers. Your first barrier is salt. That creates a very inhospitable environment. Your second barrier is the fermentation. It's going to lower the pH, which is going to prevent a lot of different pathogens from growing. I would say your third barrier is the curing salt. And so for a dry fermented sausage, you use a number two curing salt because it has both nitrates and nitrites. So it breaks down slowly over time and and off gases, right? Mm -hmm. So it gives you the element of time to continue protecting against yet another set of pathogens. And then the fourth, when you dry a sausage, it loses water activity, right? We're, we're having you weigh it, but actually what's happening is the water activity in the meat is gradually declining. No water, no life, right? So that will then eliminate the possibility of yet one more class of pathogens. So fermentation is a really critical step in getting the meat to the point that it can start drying safely. And then you have these other barriers. Yeah. I love that this product that you guys have developed, like we said, it allows us to experiment. It allows us to uh, make salami, make dry sausage, dry out pieces of meat, 
but at the same time that big uh the big, the big elephant in the room here is with safety. The amount of effort and the amount of research and the amount of steps that you have put in to, hey, like this is the product you're going to use, but here's how you're going to use it. Going through the literature that you guys have made, it has made it very helpful and quite easy. If you can follow directions on a recipe, you can follow these directions and end up with a great product at the end and know that it's going to be safe i mean at this at the end of the whole thing your nose knows but you have given some very detailed instructions when it comes to creating this uh, here's a time frame that you're going to use here's some exact measurements you're going to need it was it was very easy to follow um and like you well, mentioned that's, too that's that's really gratifying to hear because <laughs> I mean, that's the highest praise. I'm just trying to make sure that people feel comfortable and they feel supported in this process. I mean, really, like I said, my background is as a teacher, not as a business person. So the first thing is, hey, learn something new. Give this a try. Feel supported. Feel like you understand what's going on. Um, and so people who know more about this will sometimes feel like we've dumbed it down. But we've really tried to create just a base rather conservative baseline set of instructions so that whether you're doing you know whole meat meat preservation or ground meat meat preservation we call these charcuterie and salumi but actually one is just the french word for preserved meat and one is the italian word for preserved meat um whether you're doing the the whole meat whole muscle or ground um you've got the basics so that you can then like enjoy the recipe, the process, and share it with confidence. Exactly. I mean, shoot, you can't run before you walk. Why are we trying to why are we trying to run a marathon before we can even walk up a hill? And you guys have done a great job of that, of getting people confidence to do that. And especially here with uh our wild game, this is stuff that we really prize. When we when we put something to use, we want it to be, we want it to work. Um, I mean, we are, there's a lot of us out there that get enough wild game that we're willing to do something that eventually the dog is going to enjoy. If we if we mess up, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few times where I've made something and it's like, well, you know what? Old Hazel here, she's going to have something good to eat tonight. Cause it just didn't work out for us. But at the well, same time, and that's time, what I say about trim loss, whether yeah. you're driving or, you know, if you've got, if you've got trim, that so-called pellicle, you want to tuck it in the freezer and it's the best motivating dog treat on earth, right? <laughs> so there's always something for the dog. There you Fiddler go. or not. <laughs> Just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at Huntivore at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
So yeah, it's been good to do that. And then when it comes to, yeah, I, w- I don't want to say the fun part. We've gotten through the science. We've talked about really that foundational uh, steps that have been going on. And then we get to start talking about a lot of the fun stuff of, of Umai. And you guys have developed seven different spice mixes. And through those spice mixes, you can get a whole range of of flavors that you want. Um, I'm sure you can do a better job of explaining uh, exactly where those are, but I know that I was really excited about the original salami that was very uh, very open to. I just love the look of salami, and I love to, love to see it on a charcuterie board, and so that was one that I was really excited about. But then even on the dry sausage side, you uh, reaching out to you, you were saying, hey, try the, the Sujak sausage. Mm-hmm being that it's one of the ones that it's going to have more, it's going to have more heat behind it. It's going to have more spice behind it. And even in going to the refrigerator now, as it sits in my, uh, my fridge and it's, it's beginning to dry out. I open up that fridge door and I am just hit with that, with a spicy smell. And it's something I, I immediately, as I crack that seal, I throw my head down into that fridge because I look forward to that smell every time. <laughs> Good. You guys have along these these seven ones, like I mentioned, the the salami and now the sujak. Um, you had a German type that was one that was that you really were looking that you've enjoy a lot. Um, mut- muttonwurst or metwurst. Metwurst. Wurst. Yeah. Yeah. What's the flavor profile of that one? You know the um, so when we when we decided to partner with Spark Spice and create you know together these um, these dry sausage recipes, of course we started with the ones that everybody thinks of, so pepperoni, salami, soppressata, you know Italian kind of stuff, and then we have the ones for whole meat charcuterie, so lanzino, um, lo, uh, <laughs> come on Thea, you can remember. <laughs> Uh, Brazola and um, oh, Capicola, of course, you know, everybody recognizes those. Yeah. Um, but then, especially when you start talking to hunters, people know that a, a really famous kind of fermented sausage is Landjäger. Well, if you know Landjäger, the next step is Metwurst. Um, similar to how Lanzino for the whole meat tends to be more about the clove than about any sort of, you know, peppers or. Or, or even juniper berry necessarily, the medverst tends to be more about kind of those more like you associate it more with baking spices, that kind of thing. So I actually like to use the medverst um, spice blend to make pork burgers. Ooh. It really complements that flavor. Most of our spice blends we wouldn't recommend it, <laughs> recommend for you know fresh meat, but they don't include any salt. You add your own, you know, salt. We have the separate separately sold pre-mixed curing salts, just so people don't have to worry about measuring the proportions. But the Medverse has, yeah, this more, um, uh, yeah, like baking spices, kind of warming, but not spicy version. And then most recently, as you've said, we've released two new, one for salumi, one for the whole, whole muscle charcuterie, um, two blends that are more spicy because we had a lot of customers who are like, okay, I like the Spanish chorizo. I like the um, 
the pepperoni, but I like a little bit more bite. And so we would tell them, you know, go ahead and add, you know, cayenne pepper or, you know, your preferred kind of pepper. But there are other cultural traditions out there where the basic recipe has a lot more oomph. So the sujuk is a a very, very old Middle Eastern recipe that has a lot more oomph like that to it for a fermented sausage. And then for the charcuterie, we've got basturma, which is originally Armenian, but it's spread all over that region of the world where you, instead of putting it on while you're curing the meat, you actually put it on after you've rinsed off the salt and the cure as a paste, and then you dry it with this red, um, I think it's a lot of cumin and maybe fenugreek, not too sure, are around it. So, yeah, so we've got two new, you know, flavor traditions that are more in that spicy range. Good, good. Uh, I've got a couple of buddies that, I mean, shoot, they they love their jalapenos. They love their ghost peppers. They love everything obscenely spicy. But at the same time, and they're they're nuts about it to the point. My one buddy, I've mentioned him a couple times on this podcast. He's he, he's Swiss, but he's got this like bright red hair. He's got super fair skin, and when he starts eating uh, his, he, he makes a pickled jalapeno from his garden. When he starts, he opens up a jar of that, and you just see the red go from his hair directly to his cheeks, and it hits his forehead, <laughs> and he just starts sweating, but he's just so happy. And I'm like, how could you be so happy in um, this amount of pain? Not that this is what that sausage is going to do, but to be like, as we're sitting around having a beer, and I slice off a few cup, you know, cuts of these, I am. that's one of the things I'm really excited about, is being able to share that that spicy of a sausage with guys who do appreciate they're like yeah give me some heat like kind of scare me a little bit you know at that point where you really kind of get that punch to it um but even going through that fermentation process there's there's a lot of like a i don't want to say uh it's a dulling edge of of a pepper you're going to see the flavor of that pepper come out not just the capsaicin punch you mm-hmm. across the nose mm-hmm. absolutely yeah, the flavor evolves. You know, that's the origin of the concept of slow food, right? Yeah, well, you don't just pull it out of the garden and eat it. You let it open up, evolve, right? Yes. Grapes or wine? Hmm. In in an, in a culture that is all revolving around, ironically, fast food. You just said that that word, slow food. How mm-hmm. much? Why do we enjoy this stuff so much? It's because you can't pick it up down the road. You can't go to a drive-through and pick up a dry sausage. You have to either source it out, which is going to take time, or make it yourself, which is going to take even longer. Um, and that's yeah, that, that's a great segue into talking a little bit about even my experimentation. I brought my logbook along with me, um, and I've kind of, if you've been following along, listeners, with my my stories, I've been. You know, shoot, it was right back, it was five weeks ago, actually, uh, as of yesterday, um, that I actually put this stuff into casings. Um, the the soup jack and original salami. Uh, the original salami I did make into larger chubs. I was at the 70 millimeter uh, on those, and the green weight on those was around 874 grams on the first salami, 
and the one, the big, my biggie, he's at 931 grams. And you're like, Nick, this is uh, the United States. Where's your ounces and pounds? Well, the gram is essentially a great unit of measurement when you're going to be working with charcuterie because now what I'm doing is using grams because of how small it is. Now I can measure out how much water loss much more effectively. Um, anyway, that or that, at least that's what I picked up from watching uh, – the YouTube channel over here, you you my dries that we're using grams uh, to show well, and, as you, you were know, losing weight. Simply put, grams make the math really easy because you've got 10, 100, 1,000 instead of 12 or 16 or, you know. There's no conversion. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, And so from that, I, I took the, I took my green weight and I multiplied that by 0.6 because what that's essentially doing is saying that I'm going to lose 40% of the water weight out of these dry sausages and out of these salamis. And so then I got a finished weight. So for my example here, for my one chub at 8, 874, his finished weight is going to be 524 uh, grams. And so with that information, I felt totally empowered to go hang these up in my refrigerator and let the process let the process work and it's been really fun to go in and like like Sunday morning I picked Sunday um so it's after church football has not kicked off yet um oh this might be a little sore subject for somebody out of Minnesota talking to someone from Michigan oh uh, you're talking to a, <laughs> uh, I haven't lived in Minnesota my whole life and uh I'm sort of a uh, yeah, professional sports atheist. Apologies. Oh, oh. <laughs> she, she walks away from the whole thing. Well, good, good. <laughs> anyway, you won't offend me. That's the good thing. <laughs> um, but that's just kind of been the time that I've gone down and you know I line up, line them all up, put them on the scale, and get a chance to uh, to weigh them out. And as of oh, when did I write these these notes? I put them up here. Um. Yeah, my soup jack was sitting at about 15% loss, and my uh, salami, I think this was right around week week three, I was at, yeah, 7% loss on the salami. And um, what, what's a great thing to unpack here is that as much as I followed all the instructions to a T, one thing that we discussed early on before we were starting to record is that... Um, I started to see a slowing in my moisture loss. And so I was trying to find little little things to do to try to maybe help this along, you know, adding adding a little uh, fan, adding uh, a computer fan inside of my refrigerator. And I've also put these little passive dehydrators in there that I had laying around that, hey, maybe this will add, add to what I'm trying to do. And then at, talking with Thea, she's like, you know what, Nick? Maybe your deer and beer fridge that's in your garage right now that is at an ambient temperature of 30 degrees because it's sitting on a concrete floor in an unheated garage or an un, uh, uninsulated garage, because that compressor is not going to work, that might not be the best spot for those to be at. Um, so, Thea, you were explaining you're going to want to put these in an inside refrigerator because of the way the refrigerators we have work. You want to explain a little of that? Yeah, well, it's it's pretty basic that if the environment around the refrigerator 
isn't warm, the refrigerator doesn't have to do very much work, right? So refrigerators are designed to work optimally in a room temperature environment. When you put your fridge in the garage, whether you're in Michigan or you're in Alabama, between January and at least March, maybe April, that refrigerator doesn't have to do much other than be a cold box. So if you've got beer out there, maybe even if you've got deer, if it's vacuum sealed, it's just fine. But if you're trying to dry something, the compressor on the refrigerator has to do the work of pulling the humidity out. A desiccant cannot do it efficiently. I mean, if you've got a lot of pounds of meat in there, we're talking cups and cups of water. Desiccant doesn't pull that much water out. And when you put different kinds of fans and things in there, yeah, they move the air. They move the wet air around and around <laughs> and around. You know, so, so I have people who have the same experience you've just described. The drying seems to be stalled or they've got some mold growth starting. Or if they're doing it with fresh meat, you know, dry aging, the meat is starting to smell kind of bad. And they're like, is it rotten? And I'm like, yeah, probably. <laughs> because if the fridge doesn't maintain 34 to 38 degrees and have the air being conditioned by that compressor, you're setting up a situation where it's it's outside of the parameters for safety. So yeah, we always, you know, we have kind of a refrain, use a modern frost-free refrigerator in a room temperature environment, you know, it's like a mantra. Um, and it's really only important during, you know, this kind of winter, early spring time of year um, for safe results. Gotcha, gotcha. So I'm glad that I've been able to to at least catch catch this before we've had anything any huge detriment because I haven't seen any mold growth on there. Oh, thank heavens. Yes, I haven't seen any mold growth, and I've as much as I try to like you know the whole phrase if if you're looking you ain't cooking. I have totally done the opposite on this. I keep opening the refrigerator. I keep opening and looking at it and moving it and trying to kick on that. Um, that condenser. So I think it's probably going to be one of these things where we're going to migrate these to the, to the main refrigerator in the household. It's the big, uh, the big situation here as to how to, how to break that to mama. I think she'll be okay with it as long as I don't move too much stuff <laughs> out of the main refrigerator. <laughs> well, and you know, if I could mention one other thing, Nick, another thing is often, you know, if you've harvested a deer and you want to really make use of this, these new techniques, you might have put a lot of pounds of meat in there, which is just that much more moisture that needs to be drawn out. So I don't want to discourage people from, you know, making maximum use of, of their harvest. But if you're going to be drying the meat, doing it in smaller batches, especially in the beginning, you know, just, just start with that. That's why all of our spice blends and the pre-mixed curing salts are for five pounds of meat. You know, it heart breaks my heart when somebody does you know, 30 pounds of Capicola, and then they have their fridge go on the fritz. Oh, and you yeah. can't always move that over to the kitchen fridge because, uh, yeah, people want to have the milk and the butter. <laughs> and that, right? So, um, and, and, and also good to bear in mind that you can freeze the meat, vacuum seal and freeze the meat, pull out five pounds at a time and 
you know, make a bit of a mess, making up a five pound batch or 10 pound batch of sausage. But when it comes to the drying, it's a lot easier to manage that amount of moisture release in your refrigerator than 30, 60 pounds of Capicola. Yeah. Very good uh, point there that, you know what, like we said, we're, Umai's here to help us take these baby steps. We don't need to make, like you said, 60 pounds, make the small batches, use the five pound increments that you have, um, being sent a couple of those kits. It, like I said, it was easy to follow those instructions. A lot of it too, rip open the seasoning, pour it in. I didn't have to measure. I didn't have to figure out, well, how much salt do I have to put in? Because it was literally rip the package open that came with it, already weighed out for five, dumped that in, and I was moving on to the next process. So even for someone who's used to pre-made sausage kits for like a fresh sausage kit, or even a, a burger kit or whatever they're making that has those pre-kits, this is very much the same terminology. It's very much the same setup that just rip it, dump it in, mix it up, and then get it into the casings. And you know, Nick, we started out sharing lots of recipes. You know, our website and our videos and the, you know, the information that we send out inside of these kits has a lot of recipes that we we have not developed ourselves. We've taken them from people like Stanley Mariansky and um uh Les, what's his name? Les Paulson. And um, and then there's the book by Ruhlman that has a lot of recipes in it. What we found, however, is that they didn't always have really consistent that safety baseline that I was telling you about. And um, some of the recipes ended up being kind of all over the place. So that was yet another reason why we said, you know, most people don't want to go out and buy five different spices that they're only going to use once, right? Absolutely. To make their own recipe. And then, and then this question of, of do they match up with what we've determined are the safe proportions, right? Um, so coming up with the premixes means you get a fresh batch of spices, exactly enough for the recipe that you want, formulated by a company that has decades of experience with formulating dry sausage blends. Uh, and it comes to you and you just dump and go, like you said. Thea, this is exciting because I think we're going to have a lot of people that are very excited to to take on this venture. We're already, I mean, knee deep into hunting. We're already knee deep into doing more with our venison. And this is just that natural step that as we work on wanting to get the best out of our venison, we're going to want to look at the, the, the aspect of dry aging. We're going to look at the aspect of creating dry sausages. Where... Where can my folks find you? Where can they find Umai Dry in order to get their hands on on this product? So since 2015, well, we we, we opened our website uh, in February of 2009. So we have been evolving as an e-commerce business available worldwide, all shipped from Minnesota since 2009. In 2015, we made a big push to try to find resale partners to sell it in stores, you know, hardware stores, grilling stores, um, you know, you name it, different kinds of specialty audiences that might be interested in this like niche, niche, niche product, right? 
Um, what we found, though, is that it takes a lot of knowledge on the part of the store and their salespeople to be able to explain the product to people who walk into a store. And so it's not a good on the shelf kind of thing. And then along came COVID. And shopping online became kind of, you know, more the way that everybody was doing things. And so we really started upping our game so far as providing that much more education, that much more support. And uh, and we opened up, we just happened to have it in the works uh, at the beginning of 2020. But in May of 2020, we started selling some of our items on Amazon, which, you know, you got to remember, if you buy on Amazon, you bought from Amazon, not from us. But uh, that's that's just a little side note. So you can find us through our website, you can find us through Amazon, you can find us through some stores. And we've really um, built up a strong international uh, partnership with different stores because, you know, not everybody wants to ship from the US to, I mean, you name it, I think we've sold to 127 different countries. Um, so we try to get representation in those countries so people can more or less by local. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So that's where you can find us in North America. I would say, you know, you're going to get the best prices and the widest variety of product and actually the fastest shipping if you come to our website because because we pride ourselves on on doing that, you know. Yeah. Hey, and being here in the Midwest, it just makes it warms my heart even a little bit more uh knowing that you're just across the big lake there. Um that well, website. I, I is... should take a moment, if you don't mind, to mention that um, this company is myself and my son. And we have a small team of local people here that work with us. Um, most of our conversion, you know, the, the product packaging is done in partnership with a local company here in the Twin Cities um, called ProAct. They've been in business for 43 years, finding work for people with disabilities. So they are a conversion. Uh, partner because they have different levels of productive capacity for their clients who are the people with disabilities. So it's really, I mean, it's not something we really talk about very much because it's, we're not really proud of it. We just like working with them. They do a great job, you know, um, but that's, you know, that's what we're about. We're a family run business from Minnesota. Most of the products that we sell we source in Minnesota. We have racks and um, uh, sheets that come from Nordicware, Minnesota company. Our scales and thermometers are from um, Escali, Minnesota company. You know, and this is not because we have some highfalutin ideal about, you know, sourcing locally. It's because it's just easier to work with people who are nearby. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I, that's that that on this whole journey, local was my my big buzzword and it's just blossomed into this whole idea that shoot local but i mean yeah i want to go local but at the same time there are so many amazing family-run businesses family-owned businesses in the united states that yes to take advantage and go ahead and go to it's it's umidry.com correct 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 to head over there and source you out some of this uh, amazing casing or even the bags. If you want to just start out with a bag and do, you know, do a backstrap and do a little water loss on that, dry age that for a while. 
or even to the point where you now you're going to be getting the casings and making a salami, making a uh, dry sausage. It's, well, it's just so mention, cool. I should mention, Nick, that um, Umai Dry is our brand name. It's the registered brand name because of the quirks of the U.S. Patent and Trade Office. But our company was originally named Dry Bag Steak. Oh, okay. Not sexy, not something the Patent and Trade Office like. <laughs> but our original website from February of 2009 was drybagsteak.com. And it was not really an e-commerce site. It was intended to be an information exchange. So we ran a forum for 10 years there. Um, we did sell our products through that, but it was a place that housed all the information. And so if people really just want to start by learning, go to drybagsteak.com. That's our legacy site. It has a million and one resources on it. Um, it has archived the 10 years of the forum and all the questions that people exchanged with each other while this product was completely unknown. Yeah. So I, I would mention to people that that's a good place to go to learn. That is wonderful. I'm, I will put both of those in the show notes as well, that uh, drybagsteak.com is the, the forum, is the information at the side of Umai Dry. If you really wanted some questions answered, head there first. And then when you're ready to make a purchase, when you're ready to jump into uh, meat crafting, then you can head over to the other site of Umai Dry. Yeah. And they are connected. If you go to drybagsteak.com, you'll find the products listed and you can click and it basically takes you to the product listing on the umidry.com Shopify e-commerce site. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, hey, Thea, hold on for just a second as I uh, send my listeners on out. Folks, what a wonderful way to make more out of our wild game that we get. Whether it's whether you're down south and you get yourself a hog, uh, a wild hog, and you need to make something more than just sausage out of it, you want to make dry sausage. You get a you get venison, and you know you really appreciate those brats that you make, but you want to just try something that just knocks that ball out of the park. Or at the same time, if you you know did one of the 23 and Me and you found out a little bit of how, about your heritage and you find out where you came from in the old world and you want to do something from eastern the eastern block or even to find you know find out something in france that you want to do figure out what that was and you can apply that right into your own venison wild game you can awaken your heritage just by making some sausage which i find is just a really cool idea uh but yeah check out umai dry uh get yourself some some casings there Make some wonderful dry uh, sausage. But when you open up that sausage and you need to slice it real thin, make sure that the knife that you're using is always sharp.